somebody coined the phrase earlier on as I was passing by Church in the Alley. Kind of has a, a fun sound to it. Sort of uh, missional, if you want to use that phrase. And uh, these are really interesting times. I tell you, you know, and just to double down on on Darren's um, thoughts of, uh, you know, during these times of difficulty, interesting ways how the Lord has worked in his own life. And, um, you know, fortuitously, if you will, with this text, um, and I apologize, we're, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, um, this is this letter was written around 95 AD, and and uh, it it's it's really at the birth of the church, but also really at the point when uh, persecution really starts taking off in the church. And um, it it is interesting that that uh, this letter, uh, a corrective to the churches is at a time where they probably feel already pretty beaten up um, and going through difficult times, going through trials. And yet, you know, I think one of the takeaways I get from Darren's comments and my own experiences is the word, the Lord seems to work mostly in very difficult times in our lives. You know, in, in our ease, in um, the times of, uh, of uh, no want, you know, I don't move a whole lot, and and the, the times uh, of of uncomfortableness in life, um, I tend to hear the Lord much clearer. So, in that we give Him thanks, um, as James says, "Count it all joy." Um, that's the point where God is working, and we can look for Him. Um, I started this message. If uh, some of you have already heard the beginning of this, I apologize because I am going to do a little bit of recap. Um, But I started this back in June, and then uh, life took its toll. And, um, you know, a number of really difficult things happened in our family. And uh, honestly, apart from the Lord, probably would have crushed us. And, and, uh, And through it all, it's impossible to explain, but God has just so blessed our family, so enriched our family, so deepened our love for one another and and our faith that God has a purpose in it all. So, as I said, perhaps fortuitously in, in, in this text, in Revelation, we are sharing with them the experience of though we're going through difficult times, the Lord has something very important to speak to us about. Revelation 2, 1 through 7, um, if you're familiar with it, this is the letters to the churches that begin the book of Revelation, seven churches in particular, and the first one is the church at Ephesus, and that's the letter we're going to be we're going to be looking at. These letters are really entirely unique in the New Testament in that it is a text where Jesus is speaking directly to the church. He is uh, undoubtedly speaking directly to real existing churches back then at that time. 
and uh, uh, these are real congregations. And yet, these letters are highlighting problems and issues that are perennially before the church throughout the millennia. And that's where the value really comes in for us. Well, let me start by reading Revelation 2, 1 through 7, and you can join along with me. It begins, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So to give us a little bit of context, let's just take a look at the characters in our story. And to begin with, as I said, the author of this text is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ is made clear in the first chapter uh, where it begins in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold... I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So vivid imagery introducing the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this, he uses two descriptives that I think we should understand. One is the seven stars in his right hand. Much of this is difficult to understand in the book of Revelation. Fortunately, John provides for us in uh, chapter 1, verse 20, something of a key to these two descriptives. He says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So these seven stars, we were told, are the angels of the churches, and commentators agree that this isn't uh, heavenly angels, but the basic meaning of the word angel, that being a messenger of the word of God. 
and that these are these are written actually to the elders, the leaders of the church. And the implications of the, the stars being held or the elders being held in his right hand is that they are under the Lord's authority and they are um, empowered by him alone. Well, the next distinctive that is indicated in that opening text is that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we're told the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And the imagery is that Jesus is always present. He's among us. Then, now, and through the ages. And it, it, it reminds me of the final phrase in the Gospel of Matthew where the Lord is speaking to his disciples. And he reminds them, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Jesus indeed is with us always to the end of the age. And he's reminding this church he is with them to the end of the age. Well, the next we want to make sure we understand is the scribe of the letter and is none other than John the Apostle. As we have said, that he wrote around 95 AD and probably within 10 years or so of, of uh, uh, his first, second, and third epistle as well as his gospel account. The uh, early testimony of the church is that John at this point was actually an elder of the church and probably had been for decades. Why is he in exile off the island of Patmos? Most definitely because of the word of God. In fact, he says um, in uh, Revelation 1, 9 through 11, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So this is a faithful servant. He is not standing off and scolding his church. He understands their experience, and he is experiencing persecution and trials himself and writing this letter from the island in exile. Well, lastly, I just want to make sure we understand the church. And I think this is important. Um, most of us love the book of Ephesians, and it touches our heart in so many ways. Paul's letter so perfectly encapsulates the breadth of the Christian life, the depth of the gospel, the love of God. And perhaps this is a church without peer in terms of a biblical rich heritage. Gospel was introduced by Paul's partners in ministry, Priscilla and Aquila, was quickly joined by Apollos, the great preacher. For three years, Paul worked to help build the church in Ephesus. And then his protege, Timothy, became pastor of the church. I mean, this is like, what is the basketball term, dream team? This is a blessed church. And as noted, the Apostle John also, uh, for decades, was an elder at the church. At the time of the letter of Revelation, 
at the writing of this, and John indeed was a very old man at this point, four decades had passed since the church had been established. I think about us, this is 2020, so where was this church in 1980? It was a very different church, and this was a very different church. Paul was gone. Most of the congregation was probably completely unique to the church and that congregation that was there at its founding. But we have to remember in this letter, as we go into it, that it is, it is not a letter of scolding. It is a letter from the Lord knowing the time and the difficulty that they were living under. And yet he is offering them loving correction, and we need to take it in that fashion. Well, in the letter, he turns to the commendation to the church. It's always the good news first we want, isn't it? He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So here the Lord acknowledges the church shows no small effort. He says, I know your works. I know you are engaged in the work of the church. That's good. And then he says, I know your toil. Their effort is going beyond mere work, but they are willing to suffer and struggle through difficult times. And then he says, I know you're patient endurance. They are in it for the long haul. These are, this is a committed congregation. And then he says, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. This had to be interesting times. We, we, we talk about ourselves being a church in California, you know, and all kind of having feelings, wanting to flee to more conservative areas and, uh, and, and escape. This is a church in the heart of the pagan world. And this isn't in the heart of the pagan world within a uh, somewhat respectful, accepting culture. Christianity was this little, bizarre outlier in a pagan world. The, the uh, temple to the goddess Artemis was there in Ephesus, was sort of the Disneyland of paganism, traveled there by the entire world. It was the crossroads of most commercial trade routes for uh, Asia Minor, and it was also crossroads for every itinerant preacher who plied his craft and pitched his version of reaching God. And it was in this environment that the Lord Jesus Christ says that they faithfully guarded the word of God and protected the word of God. So we can't forget that this is a well-grounded, biblical, diligent church. Well, they have worked, they have toiled as a church, they have endured through persecution, difficulty, pushed back consistently against the pressures of their culture. 
in spiritual compromise. And yet, here the Lord's tone changes in the letter. And says in verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So, the first takeaway, I think we have to recognize is that a church can be diligent and hardworking, patient, enduring, uncompromising in their doctrine, and yet the Lord can say, have abandoned the love they had at first. And as I said last time, you know, as as this ran through my mind and I and I and I and I listened to the commendations from the Lord, and then boom, verse four. I, I think I would be sitting there reading this letter in stunned silence thinking, you know, what in heaven's name have I missed? I thought I really had it all figured out. I thought we were just, we were, we were just, you know, the epitome of, of, of what Christ looks for in a church. And yet, have abandoned the love they had at first. Well, let's break this down a little bit. The word abandon, which is a really strong word when you think about it. It isn't forgotten. It isn't misplaced. It isn't haven't focused on enough. It's abandoned. And when I think of abandoned, maybe it's because I've watched one too many war movies, but I think of abandoned ship. You know, it's like, it's going down. We need something else. To abandon ship is to deem a ship insufficient for your safety, salvation, or rescue. You abandon ship when you feel you need to find some other source of security. And this is a question uh, I, 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 I ask myself. When I'm working hard, toiling, enduring for the cause, focused and unswerving, is it easy to feel as though I am faithfully following Christ? And I would say yes. All the while, leaning in more and more to dependence on my own efforts, my own strength, my commitment to the cause. Had the church become inwardly focused? Were they consumed with their own diligence, orthodoxy, moral purity, while becoming cold to the cornerstone upon which they were built, a love for the Lord and a love for the Simplicity of the gospel. And again, we have to remind ourselves, this isn't one errant church. The Lord didn't put this into his word and the final book of the New Testament and the final warning to the church for just one. This is for throughout time. This is because we have a propensity for this. Well, what is this love we had at first? I think one of the things that helpful is that is helpful is to look to what John himself has written in one of his other letters. First John chapter two, verse twenty four. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide 
in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. John tells us to let what we heard from the beginning abide in us. And they had certainly let that abide in them, I have no doubt. But it seems that they had moved on. It seems that they had moved on to a focus on their work, on their toil, on their own diligence. But John tells us to abide in what we heard from the beginning. What did we hear from the beginning? We heard about the love of God. We heard his gospel. I love this old English textile term. If you ever had literature 101, you probably came across this, the warp and waft, or warp and woof of something. It's a uh, term for the elements that are used in a loom. And if, you, if you've seen a loom, and I, can't, I, I don't know which piece is the warp or the weft, but uh, you have the piece that goes back and forth between the layers of the string. And it's the, it, it, it's the pieces that uh, weave the yarn into whole cloth or into the tapestry. And I think it's just a beautiful picture of how the gospel must be woven into every aspect of our lives as believers. Paul put it to the Ephesians in chapter 3 this way. He said, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, to be filled with the fullness of God is to know the love of God, the gospel. Well, as I said, this is, this is a loving letter from the Lord to his church. And we can't take it as a scold. And in verse 5, the Lord offers a corrective. He doesn't just scold. He offers us a way out. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And isn't it interesting that he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. All that work, all that diligence, all that orthodoxy. And he's saying they have fallen. What have they fallen from? We always think of the Christian life as being this continual, you know, we talk about sanctification, which is absolutely true, but we think, I think oftentimes in terms of a, a, a growth of knowledge, a, cro- a growth of um, of uh, um, proficiency, if you will, in the faith. And that we are, you know, way farther along than when we first came to know the Lord. But he is saying, 
in spite of all these things, in spite of their faithfulness, their endurance, that they have fallen. And I think he is speaking of falling from the simplicity of the gospel and the simplicity of the love of God. Well, I love when a verse puts together a a very simple, um, structured way to remember things. This verse tells us to first remember, then to repent, and then to redo what we did at first. This is our corrective. So first to remember. Think back to your experience when Christ first entered your life. You know, with all the with all the interruptions, I've had a lot of time to think about this text. And I've had a lot of time to think about those first days when I came to the Lord. And when I think back, I had no endurance. I had no diligence. I... I had none of these things. I, in fact, that's the beauty of it. I had nothing. The reality of it, I think the, the love that I felt for the Lord flowed first from an emptying of self, a giving up on self, a complete surrendering to Christ, and seeing nothing before me but the love of God that I recognized was the only thing that could save me. I was lost without that. And once I knew that God loved me, that God had forgiven me, that God had accepted me, and by unbelievable miracle had made me his child, nothing else mattered. And love for the Lord welled up in me. But I can tell you that love for the Lord, it didn't come from me. And I think one of the first mistakes we can make in this text is reading it and coming away from, wow, I really need to love the Lord more. You can't. You cannot generate love for the Lord. What is love's source? Does it come from being diligent, hardworking, deep theological knowledge, patience, endurance, being uncompromising? It doesn't. As I mentioned, I had none of these things when I first came to the Lord, when I first felt that burning passion. John again helps us in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 9. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love God because God first loved us. Isn't that right? Has your love for the Lord grown cold? Do you feel burdened by your work, 
your toil enduring? Do you feel embittered? You know, interestingly enough, this principle of where love comes from applies to more than our relationship with the Lord, which makes sense. I think the Lord patterns all of our relationships after the Trinitarian relationship itself. It applies to marriage. It applies to parenting. If you're lacking love, For a spouse, where does that love come from? You know, there is a there is a verse that I love. Um, it just popped into my head. I, did, I don't have it written down. I, I apologize, but it says, uh, "Love believes all things." I remember when I first got married. I believed my wife could walk on water. And and uh, it, was a, it was a very simple, childlike love that we experienced. But when we become tired of one another, and give up on one another, what do we do? Well, we turn to the gospel. And the gospel tells us that God accepted me when I had nothing to offer. And we renew our relationships, I believe, when we love one another without expecting anything in return. And the amazing thing is what happens is it produces love. I refuse to not do anything but love my spouse. I refuse to do anything but love my children. I may think that they don't deserve it, but I didn't deserve it. When I love them with the love of the gospel... It is amazing what happens. And it not only restores the relationship, it not only restores the love, and I believe any relationship, no matter how far down the road it's gotten, no matter how cold they are to one another, if we're willing to love one another like Christ loved us in the very beginning, a well of love will build up within our relationship just like that first day. I've experienced that. Well, the second corrective after remember is to repent. What's to repent of? Well, perhaps stop focusing on self and what I am doing. Affirm it's not about me, it's about God. And turn my eyes upon Jesus. Really stop looking at myself. Stop looking at my own circumstances. Remember those days when you were in awe of God continually. 
I'll show you a little story. I mean, this is a little bit of transparency. I might get into trouble, but I mean, I remember when I first came to the Lord like it was yesterday, and and uh, I had started a new job just weeks after, and I'm driving 25 up to Morgan Hill playing Christian music that, that uh, I had never heard before, and uh, I remember... I, I burned through Michael W. Smith CDs and all kinds of stuff. And tears just flowing down my eyes, just just weeping. And it wasn't weeping about my sin. It was weeping over the realization of the depth of the love of God. So repent. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And then finally, repeat. Repeat those things that you did at first. Acknowledge your unworthiness. Confess every idol. Cry out to the Lord to be free of those idols. Know that you have nothing to offer God. And believe that Jesus lived, died on the cross for your sins, and rose from the grave that you might know you have eternal life. Know that nothing can separate you from the love of God. There is, Paul says, Romans 8, now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. And this should fill our hearts every day, not the rest of the stuff. Well, he goes on from our remember, repent, and repeat to a caution in verse 5. He says, if you do not remember, repent, and repeat. And I don't think he is, he is warning them of judgment so much as warning them how important this is. And there will be consequences if they don't turn the corner, if they don't return. He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Well, what does he mean by remove our lampstand? I believe he means our testimony. Without a love for the Lord, we have no testimony before the world. We can offer no hope. Only toil. Come join us. Work. Slave. What we have to offer is the love of Christ freely given to each and every one of us. Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. If the light of the gospel is burning and strong within us, everyone's going to see it. These chairs will be filled up. Does the light include good works? Well, of course it does. It goes on to say that they will see those good works, right? But those works flow from the gospel, they flow from our love for the Lord, not the other way around. Jesus said, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. Oftentimes that's read as, well, if you loved me, you'd keep my commandments. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's that easy. Don't focus so much on the work. Focus on the love. The work will come. It'll just flow from our hearts because of our love for Christ and what he has done for us. Well, then in verse 7, the Lord Jesus leaves with the confirmation to the church. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, this is vivid imagery. And I have to say, I'm right in the middle of, well, not in the middle of, I'm almost finished with, for some reason, I picked up the Chronicles of Narnia series. You know, I read it when I was 16 years old, maybe another time in college. Uh, I can't tell you when I have enjoyed books more than these when I'm 60 years old. There is so much childlike virtue and and um, beauty in the imagery that C.S. Lewis includes. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He tells us, if you are a child of God, you are a conqueror. And he will complete the work he began. We will eat. Every child of God will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Trust in God. Love God. Be about his work, yes. But love him. You know, I think, and again, from my own experience, particularly over the last couple months, um, I most relate in this text when it says they endured patiently. And they had. They had indeed endured much. They had struggled through all of the challenges of the Christian life. They had no doubt endured persecution, just as John had. They saw the gathering storm ahead of persecution on the church building. And they saw the destruction of Jerusalem already behind them. Not to mention typical personal difficulties we all must endure. And it says they did so patiently. And it should not surprise us that it is still possible to endure patiently yet have lost our love. We can believe God to be true and right and yet have grown cold, even embittered. When we rely on grit and determination rather than faith and love, we grow cold. After all, grit and determination teach us is self-reliance and nothing about God's power or faithfulness. For me, when I read Jesus' command to do those works, I did it first. It's to believe him. It's that simple. It's to believe him. Believe him with all the faith and awe and expectancy of glory and power and mercy I first came to him with. The faith he gave me. The simple faith of a child held in the arms of a heavenly father. Father, thank you so much for this letter to the church. 
Thank you that it was shared beyond this church, but recorded and even became the capstone of the canon of the New Testament. Thank you for its encouragement. Thank you also for its exhortation, Father God. Oh, Father, may we spend this day and the days ahead dwelling upon your love for us, the gospel, all that you have accomplished. When you said on the cross, it is done. You meant it. Oh, Father God, may we rest in your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.